Welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, a network for early career researchers. Hello. As it's Christmas, when we're saying goodbye to 2019, we've cut together a few of our favourite moments from this year's podcasts. Or what I should say is, poor Patrick the Soundman has, who had to listen to all the episodes we've put out this year to pick out our favourite moments. We hope you enjoy this episode um, almost as much as Patrick enjoyed making it. Thank you to everybody so much for listening to us this year and helping us reach over 3,000 players every month. We'll be back to you in the new year on the 6th of January, which happens to also be my birthday, um, when Anna Volkmer will be talking to a panel about study participant consent. So thank you very much again for listening and Merry Christmas. Hello, my name is Aoife Kylie, and I'm a research officer for Alzheimer's Society. I'm pleased to be co-hosting this podcast recording for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. Hello, I'm Adam Smith and I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast recording for the Dementia Researcher website. Hello, my name is Anna Volkmer and I am delighted to be hosting this podcast today for the NIHR Dementia Researcher website. My name is Lakshani Mendes and I'm an NIHR Research Project Coordinator based at University College London. Hello, my name is Katie Stubbs and I'm a Communications Officer for Alzheimer's Research UK and I'm pleased to have been invited to host this podcast for the Dementia Researcher website. Hello, social media. Is it of real benefit helping to create a global community of shared ideas, fostering collaboration and cross-country partnership, bringing closer the utopian vision of a world united by beautiful science and the pursuit of knowledge and truth? Or is it just another thing to add to the already long list of early career researchers, things they're being asked to do, fellowship writing, conference attending, poster making, presentation giving, networking, mentoring, career development, healthy eating, going to the gym podcasts. Uh, I've done another presentation since and I've called it um, Why Usain Bolt Shaves His Legs. <laughs> and, um, and really what the, the key message was that there's about 50,000 people in the UK doing a PhD in biology. And the traditional way to get to academia is you do a postdoc, then you do two fellowships, and then you get to a tenure position. So there's 50,000 biology PhD students, and there's about 200 junior fellowships given out each year. So it is incredibly competitive. Depressing. So, so, <laughs> I, so I said um, in, in this talk that we're basically in the Olympics of academia, and at the mm. highest level, you've got to do the running and you've got to do the weightlifting, and that's winning grants and publishing papers. But you also need to shave your legs. You need to have that every millimetre counts. And part of that is just being known. Is, mm. is your face being known by the review board? I talked about a study where... Um, radiologists were actually better at their job when you stapled a photograph to the front of the document. Um, and just seeing that face meant that they looked at the x-rays in more detail. Do you and think that's true for CVs, though? Because I, having CVs come through, I am put off when people include a photo of themselves on their CV. Yes, no, I think Maybe that's, that's a UK a personal, thing. I think that, that is, is a UK, UK thing. thing. Yeah, I've don't put your photo on there. A picture on a CV. No, yeah, no, I ever. Do that too. Yeah. Aerial I font. Haven't. Full yeah. title done. Yeah. It's very, very, very 
I got Comic Sans, obviously. <gasps> no, I don't. No. I'm just kidding. But you know, that was <laughs> developed so that the A is how you write an A normally, so that mm. children can understand it when it's written. Yeah, it looks like a child's writing. Yeah, that's why children, people that's don't why want to see me. But anyway, so not a photo, but like a handshake or a scene, a tweet yeah. showing a bit of personality. If they know you're a human being, yeah. they're more likely to review your grants better, etc. Just get over that edge. Keely, you work on um, an Outside Research UK major project that's led by Professor Kevin Morgan. Um, and as you said already, you're generating the genetic data from the BDR tissue. Um, but I know you already have quite a large kind of DNA bank already. So what kind of additional benefit is adding the BDR samples to that? Well, and as well as increasing sample size for statistical purposes, the BDR is unique as um, um, Kirsty was just saying, in the fact that we have so much clinical data. So part of the reason why we have so much background noise when doing genetic analysis with diseases, complex diseases such as Alzheimer's disease, is because there is um, very variation in the uh, endophenotypes. So with all the detailed clinical and pathology data we have from the BDR, we can correlate genetic polymorphisms with those endophenotypes rather than the, the disease, and it becomes a clearer finding. And also, because as well as kind of doing all the sequencing, I understand that you're also kind of feeding that genetic information back into the BDR cohort as well. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's now available on the DPUK and I think it's also in the brain bank as well. Yeah, and I think that's a, a great feature of BDR as well, that it's not just the brain tissue that you're getting, but you can get all the components of the tissue, like DNA, RNA mm -hmm. and CSF. And I think a, a lot of people don't realise that. Mm -hmm. Um so if you were talking to a fellow researcher who wasn't sure whether brain tissue was for them or they thought it was too complicated or wouldn't be any help to their research, what would you guys tell them? I would tell them that is very incorrect. I think <laughs> human tissue is extremely valuable to any type of researcher working with dementia. Um, this is what I preach a lot of the time to the um, the biochemical and the animal models, the cell culture people who we come in contact with at conferences and, and in our university. Um, I have a really good example of this, actually. We just have um, an, a fantastic new research associate working with us, Dr. David Koss from um Aberdeen and he's worked for 10 years plus in animal models and he was flabbergasted when he finally saw the true disease in human tissue. He saw amyloid beta for the first time that wasn't from an animal model and he couldn't believe how different it was. Now that's someone who studied this in depth for over 10 years and Tau as well but it was I remember his face with the amyloid. So I think it's really important that, you know, they do amazing work. They do things that I could never do, all these genetic, you know, and transgenic mouse and amazing cell models. But it has to relate to the human model because that's what we're trying to do. And it's so simple to get BDR tissue. You literally, you know, if you have no idea what to do, you just email the BDR coordinator and she will tell her what you want and she will signpost you directly to the brain bank that can help. And it is literally filling out one form. That's all it is. It's so easy and it's relatively cheap as well, but it can give you so much value to your animal models because you relate the, the translation of it into the human model. 
The majority of research so far has concentrated on um, objects as more of as, as comforters, particularly in relation to dementia and and, and aging. So research has looked at um, you know the, the the objects that make a room look familiar. You know the the cover, the you know a, a small piece of furniture, um, pictures, photographs, things like that. The functional objects, as we're talking about, if I make clear what I mean by the functional objects. Yep. <laughs> um, because obviously any object has a function. Um, but if we look at things like a kettle, we we can take action. So I don't have to wait for the 11 o'clock trolley to come round. I can make my own cup of tea when I want my own cup of tea the way I like my cup of tea. I could have it in my own cup rather than the care home cup that mm. everyone else has used. And, and I might have a, a cup that I have. I know I have a cup that I have for tea and a cup that I have for coffee. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it makes no difference, but for some reason to me it does. So the, the, these are the objects that I'm talking about within the home. A hoover, you know, a duster, having these things that you have access to to carry out a task. So in relation to care homes they have staff employed to do those things. Mm. So I think because staff are employed to do them, that creates a barrier. Because if I allow you to do it, then what am I doing? Do I look like I'm not doing my job? Am I then in, in, in a difficult position? Because I have to then, you know, I could be questioned about what it is I'm doing and what I'm not doing. Or equally, if somebody has an accident, then is that my fault? So what I will do is I won't allow you to use things because every every object is seen as a potential risk. Well, I was going to say the kettle one, obviously, boiling water, that's not a, you know, you immediately think risk, don't you? Yeah. But I guess you have to balance the 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 change to their lifestyle, or not the change to their lifestyle, but the benefit to their lifestyle. But you see, it's interesting that you say you look at a kettle and you immediately see risk. I mean, why is that? Because... Because I have a two-year-old at home. <laughs> but this lady will have been living in her own home for the last yeah. 70 years and making cups of tea, you know, too mm. too many to ever count. I guess and that's because she's changed her environment, mm. that simple task of making a cup of tea is suddenly deemed too risky for her. Yeah. And I think what Kellen is perhaps saying is an exploration of where does that mindset of the instant perception of risk come from in what is, in effect, a normal household object. Yeah. I guess you have to remember that there are individuals coming with a background of managing their own risk every day. I'm Adam Smith, and today I'm uh, hosting this special podcast recording from day two of the Alzheimer's Association International Conference currently taking place in Los Angeles. What were we going to talk about first? Um, should we start? What about last night's welcoming risk, welcome reception, which was fantastic, right? Yeah. I, I mean, there must have been so much work in going into organising that. For, for those who didn't know, it was at uh, Universal Studios. 4,000 people? 4,000 attended in the end. Wow. And they all had to get coached from their hotels to the to the place, which explains the, the, the queues were long, yeah. right? <laughs> they were yeah, I've heard that they were over 100 minutes long near closing. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean you've heard? You didn't go. <laughs> I didn't, but I got reports. You didn't go. <laughs> I didn't. You know, there was free, free food and drinks and I Harry know, Potter rides. I know. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> I have a lot of friends in L.A. and I am trying to squeeze in seeing them as well. So I chose to go have dinner with them. I won't lie. I it would choose like I Harry Potter over my time. friends. So. <laughs> I know. Perhaps I missed out. I missed the Jurassic World ride, which yeah. sounded epic. 
Oh, no, I think it was a fantastic uh, day. Um, I love that there was a range between these um, neurodegenerative conditions. And um, one thing I do wish was that um, there were more members of the public there. And I think it's important to know, because some people ask me when I tell them about the symposium, that a lot of these talks are free, you know, and that um, it's not like you're in a room of people who judge if you ask a question. And everyone really explained thoroughly, you know, so I think that there's some stigma that sometimes these sorts of talks is just for academics and people who understand. But I think that if more members of the public got engaged, um, got in contact or just emailed some of the people that they see, like, we're kind. <laughs> we want to talk about this because it's important. And um, But I think those people missed out. <laughs> <laughs> Jack, Marianne, when, you, when you're sort of preparing, you know, your fellowship applications, what kind of process do you go through to um, make it sure? It can be quite um, down to the wire sometimes mm. with um, applications for any kind of funding, really. Um, I have at least had experience of preparing grants for senior faculty members within my research fellow role at the university before I applied for my fellowship. Um, but... When you're applying to a fellowship like the NIHR or something like that, um, having a you know a coherent body of work that can be looked at over a protracted period can be quite important. And because um, there's not a huge amount of research looking at specifically eyesight um, in people with dementia, um, you know it's all quite new stuff. Um, and so there wasn't there wasn't enough stuff to really put together a you know a three-year program of work because you know if it's something new you don't know whether it's something that is worth doing three years mm -hmm. worth of research on um so uh when um fight for sight announced this one year primer fellowship award um, jointly with the royal society of medicine i thought oh actually um i could apply for that and do a exploratory project to look to see whether this is something um that could uh become more research in the future see whether it's actually worth pursuing or not and so um it was the first fellowship that i'd applied for um but i had to wait for the right kind of opportunity to come along to mm -hmm. suit the research idea that i had mm -hmm. i think um for me uh, a research step uh, a, a preparation step that people sometimes uh, forget to think about is actually talking because uh, you don't want to write up 2,000 words, 5,000 yeah. words on a bad idea. And there'll be senior people in your university who are on these panels who know what a good idea and a bad idea is. And there's certain um, unspoken landmines which are bad ideas that if you include in your fellowship, your fellowship will go into the bin. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes they're explicitly stated. ARUK has one where if you use high-dose amyloid mm -hmm. in cell culture, we now know that the doses, the concentrations don't reach that high in the brain, and so putting high dose on cells doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. And that's a landmine. You'll go in the bin. So write down 10, 15 ideas, mm -hmm. which you've got some pile of data for, early, well before the due date, yeah. and then go talk to these senior people, and they'll tell you the good ones, they'll tell you the bad ones, and then you can aim to get more pilot data for the good ideas, mm -hmm. which you can then construct a really good application from. But it, it does seem, as, as Marianne said, it does seem to go down to the wire in the end anyway. So no matter how prepared you are, I ended up on the phone to the accountant at 7 p.m. because I didn't know that it required a third approval step, so right. a pre-approval, yeah. an at-time approval. And then... 
And sort of to loop back around to what we were talking about at the beginning, you're both lecturers, but you obviously have research interest. How does it work in your job? Are you a lecturer who does research on the side? Or are you a researcher who teaches? How do you how do you feel your time is split? I think it's it's combined. Um, I am heavily involved in what's called the ideal study, which is a big cohort study looking at living well with dementia. And that study has been running since 2014. And I was actually employed as a senior research fellow on that. I am still actively involved in that study, still working on papers from that. So I have to say that having switched, it, it is a bit of a challenge to balance your time. I think anybody new to a lectureship position, regardless, will always say that. So it is a challenge to balance your time. But it's kind of, I enjoy teaching as well. So it's not like, you know, there's a sort of enjoyable activity. Mm -hmm. It's Also, I think you're not going to get good research ideas by just sitting staring at a computer. For me, um, research ideas come from talking to people and even engaging with the students that I'm with at the moment. It's quite, I'm learning things that's quite fascinating and that starts to trigger mm -hmm. in my brain ideas about research. Well, I was going to say, actually, there was that big ad campaign for like, secondary school teachers yeah. and they showed you know kids just asking these questions that you sort of wouldn't ask yourself. You'd forget how to ask those questions because you're so focused on something. To, so to have someone ask a more simple question, you might go, oh, yeah. But it's, it's easy, but it just sort of triggers. And I think that's, you, you know, I think it's um, interact. As I say, for me, that's, the ben that's why we love doing both. And the cohorts that... that DPUK brings together? They're not dementia cohorts, are they? But no, absolutely. We've got um, birth cohorts, we've got uh, cardiovascular um, focus cohorts, we've got healthy population cohorts, we've got Parkinson's disease focus cohorts. And so although we're called Dementia's Platform UK, by no means are these all dementia-focused um, cohorts. Absolutely. So Overall, so this is a three-day event, and is this the first time you've done this here in Exeter? Yes, so this is the first one of this year, and um, we're launching uh, this programme of uh, five datathons in Exeter this year. We did hold one last year in October at the Turing Institute, which was almost like a pilot um, datathon, which was so successful we decided to um, hold five this year, and this is the first one of five. So five this year, so work doesn't stop at the end of the three days, one assume. You bring people together, they're really focused, and then they forget about this and go back to their day jobs. And <laughs> What, what is it you actually hope to achieve through these? Well, we're really hoping that um, by attracting uh, these uh, young data scientists, and we're really hoping that this pitch will go out to early career researchers specifically, that we'll be able to break the back of um, these analyses and encourage them to take these through perhaps to publication level. So we give them access, continuing on to perhaps three months after the datathon. We're setting up user groups to keep this collaboration going and to nurture these through to output and outcomes so by no means does does this stop at the end of three months so very much focused on let's see what we can get out of the data that's fantastic so you so everybody else brings the ideas and you bring the you bring the data and the the tools by which they can make use of it yeah absolutely and then nurture it forward out of the data son as well so we i see a lot of patients in clinic um uh, and i mean i think 
so HD is really kind of characterized by three kind of pillars of symptoms. So there are the motor features. Uh, so you're in the introduction, you mentioned the kind of hyperkinetic symptoms, so career and involuntary movements. People also get slowing, uh, unsteady gait, incoordination. Um, so it's quite a, actually a diverse movement disorder. Uh, the second pillar of the kind of HD symptomatology are the cognitive features. So this would, I guess, be kind of what you may call the HD dementia. And these largely fall into the kind of executive function bracket. So people with HD have difficulty, um, kind of they get a lot of cognitive rigidity. They have difficulty processing things or keeping up um, and um, changing their minds and um, can get overwhelmed quite quickly. Um, sometimes they can be a bit impulsive in their decision making. It's those kind of executive functions that are typically go wrong, especially early in the disease when the degeneration is relatively limited. Um, and then the third kind of pillar that, that, I, that I've been treating for the last couple of years in my clinic is the other neuropsychiatric features. So HD is associated with a lot of psychiatric uh, um, disorder. So I see a lot of depression, anxiety, irritability, um, sometimes aggression. Um, I rarely treat, um, well, not I say not uncommonly treat psychosis. Um, so quite a wide range of psychiatric features. Um, and so the three together really kind of make up the clinical symptomatology of HD. And I think some of the things that's, that are quite challenging about it are the interactions between those three things. So when people have kind of fixed, uh, like have cognitive impairment, that means that they're quite rigid um, in their thinking. It's then quite difficult if you're trying to treat them for something like irritability or depression. Um, so it's it's a kind of a it's it's a very de devastating dementia really and um, and certainly you know I say this as a psychiatrist obviously but I certainly think HD is has this huge prevalence of neuropsychiatric features and the 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 bird a lot of burden in terms of distress and disability comes from those features kind of above and beyond some of the other dementias where neuropsychiatry is certainly less prevalent early on. So. Um I thought I'd throw the floor open a little bit uh, now and just ask everybody to tell us a bit about their experiences of actually gaining consent in dementia research and perhaps invite people to share some specific examples of what they've done. So I've been taking consent for 15 years now. Um, I work for many years in a dementia unit in, in a hospital in Spain. And um, I, I remember this... Um, yeah, I have this memory of, of this man who was a participant in one of our studies and I was still um, a junior clinician. And, and this person asked to be reconsent every time that he came for a research visit because he could not remember very well what okay. has been going on okay. in between visits. So he asked He that. asked, yeah, yeah he yeah. asked if he... if every single time that he came for a research visit, he could be explained everything yeah. in the project and we could make sure that he still agreed yeah. with what he had signed. Good. And I found it, you know, because no one has, this, this was completely new. I have ah. never bumped into a situation like that before, but I, I, I saw how the team and the PI managed the situation. So the doctor that was in charge of the study, he was very accommodating and he, he had a conversation with this person. And of course, we agreed that this was the way we were going to do it with him. And the whole team worked together to make it easy for everyone. And that's how we did it. Yeah. And that was a turning point for me because yeah. 
the determination of this man trying to retain his autonomy, you know, and, 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 and also making this effort for explaining that his self-determination was important and being brave enough to ask this, Very you know, brave. because these research environments in a hospital, they, they can be intimidating. Yeah. And he, he did this and also the reaction of the PI and the doctors that were so, you know, um, um, understanding and flexible and respectful, that, that was a turning point for me because it added a different dimension to my understanding of the consent process. And I understood that it wasn't only about a legal, ethical requirement, a bureaucracy. It yes. could be a human relationship and it could be flexible and you could be actually supporting um, people with cognitive difficulties to remain in power yes. and to remain autonomous. Yeah. So when you're talking about then language and communication like that and then within you know a research kind of field, how do you measure language and communication? I mean, it's a complex question because there are two different mm. questions embedded within that question. And one is, what what should we look at? And as uh, Rosemary said, there are many different lang- uh, levels from sounds, words, sentences, appropriateness. Um, and um, as we're looking at different types of dementia, different ways dementia can change your brain, uh, we can imagine that any of these levels or a combination of these levels uh, change. And... Um, and also, uh, each of these levels itself is very complex. There many different aspects of grammar to look at, many different aspects of word processing, etc., etc. So the one question is, what, are, what should we even look at? And uh, there's a bit of a variable hunt at the moment where different labs are trying to figure out which variables to look at to profile different types of dementia, pick up change early, uh, track change over time. Um, and what we are looking at is uh, one thing that we bring into the mix that is, I think, rather new, at least in this field, is the ability to produce rare language. So to say something that's not very common, to produce a new word combination or a rare word combination. Because it turns out that this is harder than saying something that you hear all the time. Okay, So what we hear all the time is sometimes called formulaic language. Uh, the word sequences are very fixed. They have a very specific meaning, for example, in com- conversation. Um, you know, there are only so many ways I can say you're welcome, and you're welcome is the, the most common way. That's a formula. Um, and it turns out that as um, my language system becomes affected by dementia, the combination, the, 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 my ability to to form new sentences and phrases decreases. So I'm more restricted to what's common. And it should perhaps not be a huge surprise, I think, because as we see in dementia generally, that it becomes a challenge to be in a new situation, to handle new information. Turns out in language it's just the same. It becomes difficult to do something new with your, with your language system. And then the other part of the question is, uh, how should we look at it? Um, and in, in a clinically meaningful sense. So we can't have uh, humans sit there and transcribe everything and hand analyze every sample. It takes way too much time. Um, thankfully, um, with the advance of um, machine learning, computer analysis, etc., we're getting closer and closer to the point where you, know, you do indeed just speak into a microphone mm-hmm. and get maybe meaningful signal out. That could mean that 
analyzing language could be very, very cheap, right? Because if mm -hmm. all you need is a bit of software and a computer and a microphone, um, that is much cheaper than putting someone in, um, in, inside an, um, an MRI scanner, for example. Well, I, you know, I thought that the sleep talk was really interesting. Um, I thought it was... Uh, I thought that the EEG data that she was using was cool, that she had stratified her um, study population by age and was showing that older age groups had um, clearly different patterns, you know, with her imaging um, and the analysis that she did. And um, it seemed like a lot of association type analysis. You know, I wasn't sure about the clinical implications exactly. Um, that might have been a little over my head or maybe, um, you know, that you know, is, has still yet to be fully uh, fleshed out. Yeah. yeah, but I think the associations seem to be there. Um, you know, what the mechanism is, is uh, not clear to me, you know, whether it's um, this sort of vascular dilatation and flushing of whatever solutes you might be carrying in your in your blood or if there's some other mechanism of um, risk that, uh, you know, sleep is otherwise beneficial for. Um, I did get the sense that, you know, we're all kind of in trouble if <laughs> it's like, because she was saying less than seven to eight mm. hours is a risk. Yeah. That was really, <laughs> so that I thought, was really well, specific yeah. though, because it was that less than seven to eight hours was a risk, but anything over eight hours was also a risk. So you literally have to sleep for seven to eight hours. And then that wasn't just on dementia, right? That was on health as a whole. Yeah. That was on, on also right. like yeah. cardiovascular. Um, I don't think know. I ever get that. But that could be reverse hours. causation too, because people that sleep a lot might be you know trying to deal with something i i saw that it, there, it seems like other disorders it's exactly like you know and so, i thought yeah. that was probably true of the pharmacological association she was sharing she was saying you know some of these um antipsychotics and i think that like benzodiazepine was one of them um that she was showing that there was um, a risk from the, or an association, a negative association, but I thought that could be confounding by indication. This was a podcast brought to you by Dementia Researcher. Everything you need in one place. Register today at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk.